Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. I do have a, several announcements to make today. Um, there is a draft roster that has been emailed around by Trudy, and she has requested that you let her know by the end of the week if there's any changes that need to be made so the final roster can be sent out. Uh, also, Laura's put a copy of the directory on the table outside as well uh, by the missions map, and that's for you to add or to edit or to change however you want, so we try to do that once a year. Also, there's some slides of some new courses that are starting up soon um, that will be, uh, there was an email sent and there will also be slides, so you can take note of those. Uh, Chris is doing a couple courses. Uh, the young adults at Bob's, and I'll be doing inductive Bible study, so invite you to consider those options. And I think that's everything. I'm actually quite bad at remembering these things, but uh, there it is. If you have any questions, talk to me or talk to Laura or somebody who has their ear to the ground with these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are good, that you know our weaknesses, you know our uh, you know that we are weak and that we need you. And I thank you that we can come to you now uh, to rely upon your wisdom and your guidance for life, that you teach us the, um, the abundant, you, you show us the way through Jesus and you give us this abundant life that we can walk. And as we follow him, we learn so much and we learn that we are sinners more than we ever dreamed and that we need you more than ever. And I thank you, Father, that you are righteous, you are good, you are trustworthy, and that you love us, that we have a hope in you, and I pray that we would receive and walk in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 9, starting in verse 18, is where we'll start today. The book of Genesis has so many big picture moments. You have the creation of the world and the fall into sin, global judgment with the flood, God's gracious salvation, the establishment of the covenant that God would never destroy the earth again with a flood, and genealogies. And we're all, yay! I think genealogies can be really off-putting for people, uh, even believers, because they're, they're strange-sounding names. We may not even be able to pronounce them, and we can't see how they relate to us. But the reality is, when we're reading these names, uh, you may not recognize them, but you are related to some of them. That's the reality, because the, the sons of Noah, through them, the whole world was populated. The Bible establishes that Adam was begotten by God, and everyone since him has been begotten by two people, created in God's image. And it's interesting how two people from the same family can bear little resemblance to each other. They can be so different, looking and personality-wise. And then other people from different parents, different parts of the world, they're so similar, similar sense of humor and in things they enjoy. And they could be almost twins. And we can have a family resemblance that's you wear on your face or in your gait or the way your voice sounds or... Or it could be something hidden, like a predisposition to an illness or a penchant for uh, substance abuse. And even in genealogies, we find there's great edification for us. And uh, it, it's proved to be a very uh, enlightening study. 
Paul wrote this in Romans 15.4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. When we hear about a recent study, we figure there's something new to learn. Like we, we would get more out of a recent study or a new study than something really old. But the Bible, it is ancient. It is it reveals the truth that we need now. It's so relevant to our lives. Through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, we find hope. Not just in new information. It's in God. It's in his word. I was thinking about family traits and how it is sobering if you learn that you had inherited a potentially fatal family trait if you had a genetic predisposition to something that you're powerless to change, there's a pattern of behavior that you've seen within a family that that seems destructive. But isn't God more powerful than genetics? Isn't he greater than a curse? Because who can be cursed whom God has blessed? Jesus came to deliver us from the power of the curse, from death, and we can rejoice and have comfort in him. The question is, will we seek him? Will we trust him? Will we believe him? Do we believe that God is actually greater than our problems? Looking back in history at humanity gives me no hope for the future of mankind. But looking to Jesus gives us hope that endures. Because there's a pattern of behavior in humans that leads to death, but Jesus, he gives life. That's where we find ourselves. Genesis 9 Starting in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now I pause here to reiterate, everyone that's alive today hails back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all the way back to Adam. And notice how Ham is pointed out as the father of Canaan. He's singled out here. This book was penned by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Moses. He wrote this at a much later time, and he likely wrote this when he was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness on their way to Canaan to displace the descendants of Canaan in the land that God had provided his people. Because God had made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 and 8, and this encouraged the Hebrews to take possession of the land, like God's given you the land after the Exodus. So we're in Genesis, but we're looking forward a little bit to what would happen. And uh, we'll see that the Bible is leading in a direction, pointing to Jesus. And this is the covenant there in Genesis 17, verse 7. God said, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The land was called Canaan because they were the descendants of Canaan, the grandson of Noah. Now one might imagine that after the flood, after all those sinners were purged from the earth, all those who did not walk with God, there would be this revival of people who are seeking God and praising and worshiping God and in a world that was now free from sin. But we'll see that in a world without sin, Adam rebelled against God 
And in a world cleansed of sinners, sin clung tenaciously to Noah and his descendants. And this is something we have observed over and over, that people expunged of their guilt, they can offend again. There's warnings, and you can see an example of like, this is what not to do, and we still do it. This is where this behavior leads, and we still find ourselves there. And if we will make an honest assessment of ourselves, we'll realize we are wretched sinners. We're hopeless and helpless in ourselves. And many of us, we've come to Christ, we've acknowledged our sin, and then we've gone on to see that we're actually more sinning, we sin more often than we thought we did. We thought we had everything, like, this is the big problem in my life. Praise the Lord, I've had victory in that area. And then suddenly you're aware of 10 other areas, or at least another one, where you're like, wow, this goes deep. Like pride, for instance. It's just, it seems to crop up. And we think we've made good progress, and that's the issue is, I think I've made good progress. And then God shows me, you know, it's not you. It's me in you. And so it's good for us to repent and to confess our sin and recognize, like, I need God. I need God to be saved. I need him to be washed clean of sin. And I need him to keep walking in victory over sin. Instead of moving us to despair when you realize that you're more of a sinner than you thought you were, this ought to humble us for the, and have gratitude for the grace of God, that God's been patient with us, right? He's been patient. He's been kind. He has provided his, his wisdom. He hasn't forsaken us. He still seeks us. He's not done with us. He hasn't written us off. We were written off. But he has done more than salvage us. He's transformed us. He's changed us by his grace. When there was no redeeming quality in us, he redeemed us. He purchased us with his own blood. Verse 20 of Genesis 9. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. God had delivered Noah and his family from the flood. He had just offered these animals, the clean animals, as a sacrifice to God. God uh, smelled a pleasing savor, and it says he made a, a covenant with Noah and his descendants after him with the rainbow. So there's this beautiful, idyllic scene, right? The world is now revived, and then we're suddenly thrust in this very sordid scene. It's quite a shock to read this, that the filth of the world had been swept away, and now we have this, drunkenness. Noah passed out from drinking too much wine. So the word here, it shows that he went back to farming after the flood. He fermented wine, drank too much of it. God had talked about he would demand a reckoning if there was the shedding of blood, but he said nothing about drinking wine or intoxication. We don't know if this was intentional or accidental. But we know that Noah, who walked with God, was not immune to the effects of alcohol. He became uncovered and he passed out. Now, uncovered, it is connected with sexual relations in Leviticus 18 and 20. It should not be assumed that this occurred. The text does not say Ham uncovered his father. He merely saw the nakedness of his father, who was uncovered. Some have... Some have 
said that, well, maybe there was something that went on between Canaan, where he saw Noah incoherent and passed out and took advantage of him. There's no evidence of that in the scripture. We don't read that. We just read he was uncovered. And Ham, with delight, told his brothers that he was uncovered in the tent. Now his brothers, they, it says they took clothes and they walked backwards. So they held it at shoulder height and they walked back to cover their father. They didn't just look away. They didn't just laugh it off. They took action to cover their father. So we see indulging and drinking alcohol, it can cause even the righteous to transgress, to do things they would not normally do. We see that in the case of Lot, and we'll read that later on, who was plied with wine by his daughters to sleep with him. That's something that he would have never done in his right mind. But while intoxicated, he was not himself. He was not making wise decisions. To this day, we see alcohol commonly playing a role in violence and rape and abuse of it leads to all manner of sin. And it wasn't just for people outside the people of God. We read of that in Habakkuk 2, 15 and 16. The prophet confronted the people over their sinfulness with wine in Habakkuk 2. It says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. God was the glory of his people, but they were turning it to shame by their sinfulness. Now, circumcision for the Hebrews, that was a sign of the covenant that they, were, they had agreed to the covenant of Abraham. But to embrace drunkenness, to pressure others to drink, that shows transgression. Now, in the New Testament, we're told, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be led by the Spirit of God rather than your own lusts. We even see David pressuring Uriah the Hittite to drink so that he would return to his house to try to cover for his own sin. But even after drinking, Uriah stood firm and we see that by faith and obedience to God, even in a world of wickedness and temptation, we can be strong in the Lord and, and avoid sin and temptation. Continuing in Genesis 9, 24. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah sobered up. He knew, likely because someone told him what his younger son had done to him. And then he uttered a curse upon Canaan and a blessing upon Shem and Japheth. Now, Ham was likely the middle son. This is likely a reference to him. But again, we see Canaan referenced here who saw, um, it's possible Canaan saw Noah uncovered and then Ham reported it to his brothers. And we know that God doesn't punish for the sins of, doesn't visit the sons of the fathers upon the son, but each will be judged for their own sin. But through this prophetic utterance, we know that Ham was aware of what would happen to Canaan, that he would be a servant of servants. And this baton of sin, it's passed from Adam to his descendants, and we see the mockery and immorality of Ham 
passed on to his descendants, and he'd run with it. We have, in this prophecy, we see a really important motif here of cursing and blessing. It's going to be repeated throughout the book, where we see people blessed for doing what pleases God, and there's a curse of sin uh, that impacts future generations. Thankfully, Christ, he over, overcomes the curse through his shed blood, and he gives us life and hope. And we're blessed to serve him, aren't we, rather than sin. Descendants of Canaan, that he would be a servant to his brethren while Shem and Japheth were blessed by God. And due to this passage, over the years, people have tried to divide people groups into three and, and have justified all kinds of ideas. And, but really, it's speculative. The Bible's unique in keeping ancient, accurate records. There's no other book or anything that's even comparable to what the Bible does in saying the whole human race came from these people and being able to trace it all the way through. Kings and nations have risen and fallen. The word of God, it endures forever. So after the flood, it says Noah lived another 350 years, died at 950 years of age. And from a Jewish source, I read that Abraham was 58 years old when Noah passed. So it gives you a little idea of how much time between... Abraham, and then we have Abraham's descendants going into captivity, you know, slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, and then Moses after that. And Moses is the one writing of this. Picking up in Genesis 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Medei, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphah, and Torgarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastline peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations." Genesis chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. It details over 60 plus people through whom the earth was populated. So descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's an archaic list. It's without any rival. We, it's undetermined whether it's um, exhaustive or if there were some left out. Most genealogies in the Bible don't include everyone. Like it doesn't say every person's name that came out of uh, Egypt later. And quite often what we'll see is a pattern of the people spoken of early in a genealogy, that'll be the last reference of them. Like with Cain and then the descendants of Seth, because they were going to follow along with Seth's descendants. And so Noah was a descendant of Seth. So here we see Japheth first of the Gentiles, and then it's going to move to Shem through whom Abraham would come. So it's not necessarily by age. Let me begin by saying I am not an ethnologist or an anthropologist. The history is vast and complex, and uh, I'm not going to look at it in great depth. And you'll see that there's a lot of different interpretations of things. The big takeaway for us is people were divided into lands according to their languages, families, and nations. We don't see people today strictly segregated by language like before and how the languages came to be, we'll talk about next week with the Tower of Babel. 
Based on Genesis 10.21, some believe Japheth was Noah's eldest son, as he's called in that verse, the elder. During the study, it showed me how I always took for granted that they were always spoken in the, in the order of their birth, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I mean, why else wouldn't they be in that order? But not everyone's in agreement to this. I spent hours digging into it. I feel like, yeah, Japheth, I'll, I'll put him as the older. And the fact that his genealogy is mentioned first, it supports he's the eldest son. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter the order of their birth. But why would Shem be mentioned first when all three are mentioned, yet last in the table of nations? And it's because his is the most theologically important as it, tra- it goes through, it traces the line of Noah, Shem, Abraham, all the way to Jesus, that it is pointing and directing us to Christ. And we see, too, that um, when you have people and family groups spoken about, we will say the one that's more theologically important first, like Jacob and Esau. We know Esau was born first. But even Hebrews 11.20, it says, By faith Isaac believed Jacob, blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So Esau was born first, but in the New Testament, they say Jacob and Esau, because Jacob is the one who received the birthright and the blessing. So his name goes first. In Noah's prophecy, he says Japheth, whose descendants were Gentiles, he spells that out clearly, they would dwell in the tents of Shem. And that's really a beautiful uh, foreshadowing of what would happen. The picture of unity and peace through you have the messianic line, you have through Christ the church being made, and then Shem, I mean the descendants of Japheth, coming in and dwelling in that tent, being united as one before the Jews were even a people. It's quite cool. Genesis 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Septaka. The sons of Raama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Ham had a notable descendant besides Canaan. We see Canaan mentioned here again. But it's this mighty ruler, and mighty hunter named Nimrod. And I read, it, it was a bit just pop culture, it was Bugs Bunny in Looney Tunes that made Nimrod, because he was a hunter, speaking about Elmer Fudd and how you know he's a pretty hapless hunter, and he called him a Nimrod, because Nimrod was a mighty hunter before God, so it began to be something that you'd call someone a Nimrod if they were an idiot, if they were a bumbling fool, like Elmer Fudd. Uh, so it, it really means a mighty hunter. That's what it means to be a hunter. And it was spoken again, his might, in 1 Chronicles 1.10. It says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. Nimrod's the first person we see who had a kingdom. He built cities. He ruled over them. 
The word mighty there, it means champion or greatest. So among all the people, he stood out as the greatest hunter, the most mighty man who ruled. And it was not a compliment. He, he ruled in his prowess to hunt animals, but also men. He ruled with power and uh, tyranny. He founded cities, and these cities that he founded became enemies of Israel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's where people united to make a great name for themselves, really to rival God. He was a founder of cities of significance like Nineveh and Kala and the father of the Assyrian people, known for their skill in warfare and their monumental buildings and a major power in the Middle East. And Micah 5, 6, it connects the Assyrians with Nimrod. It says, they shall waste with the sword, of the land, sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Nimrod was a mighty man on earth, but nothing compared to the mighty power of God. There's a lot of people who have power and rule over this earth, but building a notable city is nothing like creating the heavens and the earth with the words of your mouth. And there's people who live as if they rival God, as if God does not exist, as if they can be whoever they want to be. Um, yet their might and power, though it be great on the earth, it's futile to even challenge God. It cannot touch him. It cannot reach him. It doesn't trouble him. God ended Nimrod's building project by just confusing the languages of the people. And men who boast against God, they'll be revealed in time to be liars because there is no one who can stand before him. He brings the mightiest down to the grave. It's like, Nimrod, where is he? He's not around, but God, he endures forever. Picking up in Genesis 10, 13. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphutim, excuse me, Naphtuhim, Parthrusim, and Kalushin, from whom come the Philistines and Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Ammonite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. The descendants of Ham were numerous, uh, comprised many of the Ites and the Philistines that we see inhabiting the land of Canaan and the surrounding areas. Jebus, the Jebusites, they inhabited Jerusalem. It was previously called Jebus, and then after David took it, they called it Jerusalem. Moses wrote of the Canaanites being dispersed, and he uses known areas as points of reference, and their border is along this and, you know, along Sodom and these various places. Gath, those are other that was, a get, that was one of the five principal cities of the Philistines. And he does read, write of Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, destroyed by fire because they were exceedingly sinful before him, infamous for immorality. 
It's incredible to think of all of the descendants of Cain and Seth, only Noah and Enoch walked with God. And then we have Noah and his family, and all of Ham's descendants had the choice if they would follow God or not. But only Lot was delivered from Sodom, and he was of Shem. Paul asks concerning the heathen this in Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Completely true. We should be those who proclaim the truth of the gospel and live it out with our lives. It's also true that you can be a preacher of righteousness and people will choose not to listen to you because Noah was a preacher of righteousness and yet uh, only his immediate family were spared in the flood. A key point that Peter makes concerning Sodom was not the judgment of the wicked, but the deliverance of the righteous because Lot was a righteous man. The Bible says there's no one righteous, but he imputes it by grace through faith. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. It's really a remarkable passage. It ties together a lot of the things we've, we've spoken about and will speak about. 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. We'll just stop there. Sodom was not doomed because of the curse put upon Ham or his descendants. It was because of the sinfulness of the people. They refused to walk in righteousness. They refused to place their faith in God. Abraham, he talked to God as God said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Well, the cry from Sodom has come up before me, and I'm going to go check it out and see if it is as it's been told me. Or it's just uh, because he's speaking with a person. We'll get into that. But anyway, he, he, he negotiated with him and said, say there's 10 righteous people in the city. Would you destroy it? And he says, for the sake of 10, I won't destroy it. And because he destroyed it, we know there were not 10 righteous people in the city. Only Lot and his immediate family was preserved. One of the main points Peter makes here is it's a warning, but also God is able to save those who fear, trust, and love him from a cursed world, from a cursed family, a cursed city that's fit for destruction. Lot saw and heard things, it says, daily that vexed him. He was oppressed by the things that he saw and he heard. 
this lawlessness that raised a cry to heaven. It got God's attention because of what was going on there. But Lot was not at the mercy of temptation because the Lord who rules over all knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserves punishment for the unjust on the day of judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh. Humble faith in God, it breaks the power of a curse that would destroy us because God is a savior. He is glorious and good. No son of Ham could rightly blame him or blame Canaan for their behavior or their choices, their lust, their promiscuity or perversion, their pride. No one can blame your upbringing because of the world that you're living in, because of the temptations around you, your genetics. We can't blame that for our sin. I mean, we can, but it's not legitimate because God will judge each one according to his own sin. Noah and Lot, it shows us the Lord knows how to deliver his people out of temptation. We cannot blame others for our self-will, our hatred, our racism, bigotry, insatiable appetite for pornography, our drunkenness, none of that. It's not because it's in your family, it's in your blood. No, it's in our hearts, it's in our heads. It's because we are sinners and we must own that. And he delivers those who trust in him, those who repent. There's hope for the children of the heathen in Christ. We are not needing to be slaves to sin anymore. This is, the, this is the joy of the gospel, that we have hope in God. Genesis 10, starting in verse 21. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Ibaimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha as far as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. There were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So we've come to the descendants of Shem. Verse 21, it says he's the brother of Japheth the elder. And it seems the Hebrew can be interpreted, depending on your translation, that Shem is older or younger brother of Japheth, and Ham is in the middle. Uh, and really, there seems no reason to contend over it. The grand picture, who's born first, is of no consequence. Um, Shims mentioned last, as said before, that his line, through his line, Abraham would come, David, Jesus. We see that line traced all the way through Scripture. 1 Chronicles 1, 24 and 27 goes further. It says, Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and Abram, who is Abraham. So there, it's taking us in a direction. 
It's focusing us on the main point, and that's getting to Jesus, directing us to him, that we would be trusting in him and seeing that this was God's plan all along. When he wrote it in the Old Testament, he, he was pointing towards what he was going to do. It was all determined by God. In verse 23, we read of Uz, which was the land where Job lived, the greatest man on the east, so that puts him in this era. Verse 25 speaks of Peleg. It means channel or canal. He was given this name because in his days, the earth was divided. Now, the main meaning is explicit in the text that people would be divided by languages and lands after the confusion of Babel. Some have suggested that there was some sudden continental drift that occurred during his lifetime. Uh, It seems that the breaking up of the deep, that all stopped 150 days after the flood began. If there was such global seismic activity that happened then, it would have likely, based upon our understanding of seismic stuff, would have been catastrophic. It would have been like a second catastrophe. Um, We do see the same Hebrew word in Psalms in relation to division of tongues. David writes in Psalm 55.9, Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. So based on the immediate context of the passage, the following chapter that's going to talk about this specifically, the division of people and nations was because of the division of tongues that God made to separate them because they had all joined together. That's the better interpretation. Either way, it can, you cannot rule out that that happened, but it cannot be proved either. So based upon the immediate context, I think that's a stronger interpretation. The sons of Japheth, Ham, and Shem were divided by language, families, and nations to populate the earth. Though the world had been wiped clean of sinners, sin remained. The problem was still there in the hearts of men. The covenant God made, he would never destroy the earth with a flood. It did not prevent Noah and his family from excess, from wickedness, It didn't foster righteousness in them at all. It didn't make them righteous because God made a judgment. And this is consistent before and after the law of Moses. Even Paul, he wrote this to believers in Romans 3.9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Noah didn't walk worthy of the new start if he intended to be drunk. Um... And those born again by faith, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we are no better. We have sinned as well. We have sinned before we knew the truth. We have sinned after coming to the truth, right? There has been sin in our life. We're no better than Shem, Ham, Japheth, or Canaan. But Jesus Christ, unknown to our fathers, has come. He's been revealed to us as the Lord who delivers us from temptation, from sin and death. Now, it would be really cool. If you could show me, um, document, like, I am a direct relative of Shem, or I'm a direct relative of Japheth. That would be cool. I would be pretty intrigued by that. Uh, But how much better and profitable than one of those ancients being your father is to say, I know God as my father. He's the God who's delivered me out of all temptation, who gives me hope and eternal life and forgiveness of sins to be free of the curse, to be delivered. 
and we've been redeemed by his grace. Noah, it says, awoke from wine and prophesied as led by the Spirit. Christians also were called to wake from our spiritual slumber. Quite often we look at people in the Bible and we wonder, like, why would they do that? How could they be so stupid? Or don't they get it? And, and whenever we ask those sort of questions, they're really just bounce right back to us. Like, don't you get it? God doesn't say, like, are you stupid? That's our projection. But he gives us his wisdom. We can say, well, I'm not walking according to that at all. But Christians called to wake up from spiritual slumber. Why don't you turn there? We'll just close here. Romans 13, starting in verse 11. It would be one thing if he's speaking to unbelievers, but he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to people who have been awakened to the knowledge of their sin and to their need for forgiveness and their need for God's strength. And yet we too can be spiritually asleep. Romans 13, starting in verse 11. He writes, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now is the time. Now is the time to be awake, to have that clarity that Noah had when he awoke and he knew what had happened. It's for us to look to the Lord. And if we've been convicted by his sin, if we are asleep, and you think about it, we all slept last night. Likely, most everyone in this room slept last night, or you slept sometime this week, or you slept sometime this last month, right? And we don't look at like, oh man, you slept, unbelievable. I cannot believe you did that again. Well, this is how sin can be in our lives. We have sin that uh, is in our flesh. God has delivered us from the power of it, and yet we sin. And we can continue to sin day after day after day. And then when we've, we've confessed that sin, there can be other sin that we're not, we hadn't been aware of. But know that through Jesus Christ and faith in him, he delivers us from that sin. He is able to keep us from temptation and to bring salvation. And so it's time for us to repent. It's time for us to seek the Lord. Not to walk in the night hiding, but to come into the light, to walk with him. And we all need to do this individually. Sometimes we're called to do this with others too, to be confessing our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. And so I encourage you, in light of this message today and God's word, take time to bring your requests before the Lord. Repent of sin. And if you want to pray, come up to the front after the service and there will be people to pray with you. And if you're not yet born again, today is the day. Today is the day to follow Jesus Christ and to say, you know, in my own flesh, I cannot resist this sin. I, I cannot resist what's destroying me. But through Christ, there is hope. And I lay hold of him for that hope he gives.
So put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. God delivers and saves, and in him, our Father, is an everlasting hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are our Father, that you have adopted us as your own, that you are the Lord over all, and there is nothing greater than you. There's no hunter among men. There's no sin. There's no curse. There's nothing that troubles you at all because you are almighty, glorious, and awesome in all your ways. And I thank you, Lord, that we are no better than our fathers, and I pray that you would open our eyes to see that, that we are sinners, that we have need of your forgiveness. We have need of your grace and to be sanctified unto you. And I pray, Lord, that you would put in us a heart to believe you, to trust you, that you are able to protect us. You're able to preserve us, even as you did Lot in that sinful, among those, that, that just sinful environment. And Lord, that's just a picture of our hearts, and we deserve your judgment. And as that day approaches, Lord, I pray that we would, not out of fear of punishment, but out of love and being drawn by your mercies, we would seek you, we would run to you, and we would rejoice in you and trust you. Thank you, God, for my brothers and sisters here today. Thank you that you, you are patient and compassionate and merciful toward us, that you know our frame, that we are dust, and that you give us new life and you transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.